All right, hi, and welcome to uh, Red Reviews with Justin Clark. Uh, thanks for joining me. Hey, Corey, how's it going? Not too bad. Yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. It's getting sunny and warmer here and beautiful Indianapolis, so that's nice. I know it's been warmer for you too, I think. Finally spring. Yes, <laughs> finally spring. I said that. We just got we just got ravaged through winter's asshole, and now we're just finally <laughs> yeah, we're finally right. in in spring, which is fantastic. I said on Twitter the other day that we're in the uh, we we've finished the freezing to death every time I go outside, and now we're in the itchy eyes and runny nose season. Bingo, bingo. <laughs> you see the trick. You see the trick is you don't get those allergy things if you're on allergy meds all the time, which ah, is yours truly. Okay, yeah. I take a cocktail allergy drugs every single day because I couldn't go. exist otherwise. Because I'm basically mildly allergic to everything. <laughs> so, like, you know, there's like some people who are sort of really, really or deathly allergic to a couple of things. Yeah. I'm mildly allergic to everything. So, it's, I have to. So, you just so. walk through life with itchy eyes and a runny nose. And like, I did before I started taking medicines yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. My nose used to run all the time. And, and, uh, yeah, I'd get terrible, like, sinus headaches and stuff. And then, I finally started doing more of an allergy regimen. I do the shots, but I don't make enough money to do that. It's too expensive. Right. Yeah. Um, and because of what I'm allergic to, I don't know if I need more than one or not. I don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a clue. So yeah, yeah. I don't know enough. I don't know enough about it to give any advice for sure. I'm not a science person. <laughs> I love science. I used to always like the way that Penn and Teller described it. They're like, we describe ourselves as cheerleaders for science. Like we will pop right. up the pom poms and yay science, but I'm not, you know. And so it's, I, I have a layman's person's understanding of science, which I guess is much better from people even a couple hundred years ago. So, yep, yep. Um, so yeah, so tonight we're going to be, Starting what will sort of be informally like a couple of episodes sort of throughout the year where we're sort of going to be talking about um, the Marxist humanist tradition. Nice. Um, and so tonight's book is Toward a Marxist Humanism, Essays okay. on the Left Today by Lizette Kolakowski. So let's kind of begin the conversation with describing, okay, well, what is Marxist humanism? So Marxist humanism was a sub section of Marxism that sort of developed out of the sort of failures of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. So okay. there were a variety of different writers whose reactions to Stalinism were, you know, trying to highlight the ways in which Stalinism had um, either completely perverted Marxism or wasn't even really Marxism at all. And so, so you have some earlier sort of versions of what would become Marxist humanism in writers like Georg Lukács, who was a Soviet politician, not a politician, but he was like a public, he was like a civil servant. He worked in the early Soviet government, was sort of phased out by Stalin um, okay. and had some of his writings sort of suppressed and so on. Um, and but it really comes into the fore, you know, starting in the 1950s and 60s after the death of Stalin in 1953. So the book that we're talking about tonight, Toward a Marxist Humanism, really is a product of what was called the Thaw in the 1950s and 60s of the Soviet Union. Because this book was published, I think, in 69. Okay. And so the Thaw is basically like the, the sort of the more opening up of the Soviet Union post-Stalin. and. You know, um, and so 
there are a variety of different writers who are sort of directly responding to these sort of twin crises that we saw around the world. One was sort of market capitalism, you know, mm-hmm. the, the problems of the West, the sort of degradation of humanity by the capitalist system in the United States and sort of in broadly the capitalist world. And then there was the single, there was also at the same time a critique of the Soviet Union and sort of authoritarian socialism or what they called state capitalism. And those critiques kind of go hand in hand. The tradition is very similar to people who would say neither Moscow nor Washington. So it was this very open tradition that was trying to basically develop a alternative route from the two poles of, you know, dominant political ideologies in the 20th century. And Kolakowski was a part of that tradition. Um, So is Eric Fromm, um, who is my favorite of all of the Marxist humanists. And we'll be covering his book later in the year called Marx's Concept of Man, um, which is actually like a, it's like an extended essay that he wrote. And then it's also collects for the first time in English, Marx's um, philosophical and economic manuscripts of 1844, which are very crucial and kind of center to the Marxist humanist tradition. So the, the ideas of sort of alienation and the ideas of sort of degradation under oppressive systems, the, the humanist themes of Marx are really in that early period of Marx in 1844. But as Fromm will argue, they were continuous. There was a continuity between late Marx and early Marx. Cause as we've talked about before, there were sort of people who viewed the early Marx work that was more humanistic and philosophical was contradictory to the sort of late, right, you know, right. more um, economical and sort of strategic Marx. But in reality, those two kind of go hand in hand and Frome sort of makes that point. Okay. There were a couple other leaders of the, the sort of Marxist humanist movement. One was Raya Dunyevskaya. Um, who was a Russian dissident who came to the United States and sort of founded the Russian uh, Marxist humanism in the United States. Um, Her probably her most important book on that is Marxism and freedom, um, which I do have behind me, but we might do that in a future episode. And the other one is a guy named Ernst Bloch, um, who was um, another writer who um, wrote a book on Marx, but he also wrote a three volume book series called on the principle of hope. Okay. So, Marxist humanism in its essence is trying to get back to the roots of what Marx was trying to articulate to the world. Right. Which is that the system of capitalism alienates us from our work and it alienates us from ourselves and it alienates us from others. And in doing so, it it continually degrades us. And whether that's the sort of market capitalism of the United States or the state capitalism of the former Soviet Union or today China, you know, um, that these people would say, if you look at China and you think that's socialism, I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> right. Because I don't believe that. Because, um, yeah, based on what I interpret Marx to say, this was not socialism. This is not socialism. It's just not. Um, um, and I know people can make arguments that it is, but. In the Marxist human tradition, they wouldn't say that because that's right. what they said about the Soviet Union too. So um, alongside from Kolakowski is my favorite. So Zach Kolakowski was from Poland um, and he 
left the Soviet Union, um, essentially kind of was an exile of the Soviet Union for, for writing material that was becoming increasingly more critical of Stalinism um, and the sort of authoritarianism of the Soviet Union. He, he goes to London for a while, and then eventually he settles in the United States and becomes professor at the University of Chicago for many, many years. Okay. Kolakowski is one of the right he, – he, like Fromm, he, he is a very eloquent writer about Marxism and political theory, but he's also really in tune with the history and the philosophy of religion. Okay. And he'll often talk about the ways in which um, Stalinism became sort of this oppressive religion of its own and dogmatism. And that leads us into the, the, the first essay okay. of the book, which is a wonderful essay. And I think, you know, when we talk about skeptical leftists, mm -hmm. right, this first essay is, is a really great encapsulation of what we're trying to get across. So the essay is called The Priest and the Jester. Okay. And he sort of talks about how, um, you know, we, we talk about how socialism in and of itself is kind of um, a form of eschatology. And eschatology is just a long, fancy word for um, uh, sort of the end of the world um, or sort of the end of the world as we know it, right? Okay. To, to quote the REM song. And that, you know, so he writes about how. Um, you know, so he, he writes this secular eschatology, this belief in the future elimination of the disparity between man's essence, who he is, um, and his existence in the deification of man presupposes, obviously, that essence is a value and that realization is desirable and that the wisdom of history will bring about this realization. So when he's talking about that, it's basically like that, that the goal is to resolve the contradiction between the essence of man and the existence of man, that the difference between having and being. And what that means practically is that the elimination of want, the elimination of poverty, disease, suffering, that we create finally a final culmination, which will lead to the new society, the new city, right? The new polis. Okay. And that that is a worthy thing to value, but it's also a, a thing to be critical of. Because when you are so doggedly determined to follow a form of secular eschatology, you are essentially becoming what Eric Hoffer would have called the true believer. You're somebody ah. who is completely dogmatic. You right. are 100% into the cause. And anything that deviates from the cause of the final goal should be eliminated. And so that, that is kind of the trouble with that sort of eschatological thinking. Right. And so it's important for us to note that we we have to be critical of those kinds of things. And that gets us into why the essay is called The Priest and the Jester. So Kolakowski is really great at sort of creating these archetypes to help explain concepts. He does this in another part of the book where he describes the clerk and the, and the anti-clerk. Okay. But, but the priest and the jester are essentially... Um, if you were to use different words, the priest is the dogmatist, the true okay. believer. Um, and the jester is the skeptic, the free thinker, the one who is individual, mm -hmm. who is challenging established norms, right? Okay. And so what he writes about in the essay is he says, um, the antagonism between a philosophy that perpetuates the absolute 
the priest, <laughs> and a philosophy that questions accepted absolutes, the jester, seems incurable, as incurable as that which exists between conservatism and radicalism in all aspects of human life. This is the antagonism between the priest and the jester. And in almost every epoch, the philosophy of the priest and the philosophy of the jester are the two most general forms of intellectual culture. I think this is right. So the priest is the conservative. It's the reactionary, the dogmatist, right. the one who, who will maintain the status quo. The jester is the iconoclast, the free thinker, the skeptic, the one who questions things, the one who challenges accepted norms, the political radical. We on the left, we're all jesters. Right. None of us are priests, or at least none of us should be priests, that we should be open to challenging accepted norms about how things are. And so, um, as he further writes, the priest is the guardian of the absolute. He sustains the cult of the final and the obvious as acknowledged by and contained in tradition. The jester is he who moves in good society without belonging to it and treats it with impertinence. He who doubts all that appears self-evident. He cannot do this if he belonged to good society. Uh, let me see. He would then be at best a salon scandal monger. So basically just kind of like a charlatan. Um, the jester must stand outside good society and observe it from the sidelines in order to unveil the non-obvious behind the obvious, the non-final before the final, behind the final. Yet he must frequent society so as to know what it holds sacred and to have the opportunity to address it impertinently. So that's our goal, right? That's our goal on the left is to be the jester. It's to be the one who challenges accepted norms, that asks those basic questions, that challenges power. Because mm -hmm. that's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah. That, that, that the left is that which challenges established power and established tradition or the establishment in general. And, and, but at the same time is one who understands the way that societies work, that we, we are of society. We are from society, but we're not necessarily always of it. That we kind of can sort of take a step back and say, and maybe look at that from a different angle and show people the non-final in the final, right? The non-absolute in the absolute. Yeah. And, and I love that. I think that's, to me, that's the message of what I think we're trying to do here. And I think the message of the show is that, is to be the jester, is to be the one who challenges the the accepted values of the society and makes people question deeply their sure. preconceived notions and deeply held values. And we should do that within ourselves, that we're constantly doing that within ourselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. And like, even when like, uh, you think about like, uh, left philosophies that we believe in or adhere to, to some degree, we should still be able to criticize them and analyze them questioningly rather than just sticking to whatever a book says. Right, right, right. Because there may be situations where we have to stand on principle, right? Right. And we might be in the position of the priest where we're actually standing on a principle on something that maybe certain things that in questioning them you were, or challenging them, you were actually upholding power. Right, right. So like this is what it means by like under, where he, when he says like you have to understand the good society in order to criticize it. Like you have to know what's worthwhile to know what's not. Yep. So it's so like like I don't like for example like turfs, right? Like right. I don't think of turfs as jesters, right? Like 
they are people who parade themselves around as like challengers of established norms when in reality what they're actually doing is just reinforcing um the same yeah, hierarchies just, and the same structures of power yeah, upholding the status quo but under a different name or whatever yeah and they and 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 conservatism is very very good at absorbing the the iconography and the and the terminology of the left mm-hmm. so that and and so in the uh, another essay in this book that i love is an essay called um the concept of the left like this is one of the essays that really like was people ask like what does the left mean what does it mean to be on the left what does it mean to be a leftist that's a really good question it right? is and and kalikowski gives his answer which is that um you know, we are we we on the left are in the position to act as a negation against the system as it exists. The we exist as a constant reminder to the status quo that they're not good enough. Like that's you know that's what we're supposed to do. So he says um, in the essay, the concept of the left. He says to construct a utopia because it's about believing in utopias, right? Like right. like. When it, it kind of reminds me of so, so, like I know that like Lenin once said like we are not utopians, but like everybody kind of is. Like <laughs> right, then what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and what the fuck are you doing? Right, like we all have this idea in our head of like what the good society is, right? Yeah. Um. So to construct a utopia, this is Kalikowski now. To construct a utopia is always an act of negation toward an existing reality, a desire to transform it. But negation is not the opposite of construction. Right. It is only the opposite of affirming existing conditions. That sounds similar um, to stuff I've heard uh, from other, like, like uh, when talking to people about Murray Bookchin or like right. uh, other uh, different types of writers. It's like, yeah, utopia isn't necessarily like, like it isn't uh like it isn't like a nothing. It's a, necessarily it's like an ideal in many ways, right? And we're all striving towards an ideal. It's a normative ideal, right? Because politics is a normative exercise. It, it's not. It's not a. It's prescriptive, not descriptive. We mm-hmm. we. It's mm-hmm. what we want to be, not what we are. And so when he talks about um, the opposite of, of blowing up a house is not to build a new house, but to retain the existing one. And so like there's so like so he talks about how um the left and this is the unchangeable and indispensable quality though by no means it's only one is a movement of negation toward the existent world. For this very reason it is as we have seen a constructive force. So this is the idea of the negation of the negation. This gets into Hegel, right, right. So you have you have the affirmation you have the negation and then you have the negation of the negation. And the negation of the negation is necessarily it's opposite. It's something completely different. <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> this is why the left rejects the objection that its program is only a negative and not a constructive one. A left right. without a – yeah. Yeah. Like we have to criticize the status quo in, and mm-hmm. at the same time build our own society and we it's got to be both and we have to be able to – yeah. It's got to be all of it. <laughs> right. And so he, he just kind of hits the nail on the head here where he says, a left without a constructive program cannot by that token have a negative one, since these right. two terms are synonymous. If there is no program, there is at the same time no negation. There is, that is no opposite the left, in other words, conservatism. So if all you're doing is criticizing the system without actually sharing a vision of what we could do, yeah. then in essence, you're doing kind of nothing more 
than weirdly enough, kind of reaffirming the system, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, you know, it's when you look at all these different little problems and then you don't, and then when you realize they're actually one big problem, the big problem is capitalism. <laughs> um, it's this, it's, you know, or it's like, oh man, things are horrible, but I don't really know what to do. So sorry. Um, you know, I'm looking at think, you again, nihilist anarchists. <laughs> right. <laughs> sorry. Exactly. Like it's it's like like Kolakowski's philosophy, the humanist tradition in general, is fundamentally anti-nihilist. It's yeah. it's yeah. humanism at its core, not even just the Marxist part, but the humanist component, the humanist worldview is seeing the worth and value and dignity of every human being and their capacity for self-fulfillment. That's what humanism is. And so we can see how both the degradations of capitalism and the degradations of authoritarian socialism essentially create the same problems in different forms. Right. Whether the factory is owned by the state or not doesn't necessarily mean that it will no longer be exploitative. Right. So yeah. You know, and this is a point that Fromm makes in, in his essay on Marx is that he, he kind of says, like, for the Marxist humanist, there generally is no discernible difference between the sort of capitalist-owned factory that's exploiting and alienating its workforce um, through the, the desire of profit and the Soviet-owned work, work, workplace that is essentially is all into the glory of the state and of the, and rather than the fulfillment of its people. Right. And so like that's I think a really big issue a big point is that we should not be comfortable with any of how things are and and constantly challenge even not just how they are but like our possibilities of what they could be. And so like he also like mentioned somewhere else the idea of the left being continually redefined. So yeah. that it's never it's never necessarily um it's not it's, it never gets to a place where it's just at where it wants to be. It's sort of anti-eschatological in the sense like we don't have like an endpoint. Mm. Like, you know, we're constantly trying to improve exactly where we are. So like, like let's like let's say we get to the world where we do have socialism. We have real socialism. Is that going to negate the problems that our human race is going to have? No, not all of them. It's going to alleviate a lot of them. It's not going to alleviate them all. We're still yeah, going to have still, to work on things. We're still going to have to work on yeah. things, which is why Marx and Engels make the point in their earlier writings that like the creation, the conditions of socialism create for humanity, the, the really the beginning of history that like we finally get to no longer, we're, we're no longer shackled mm -hmm. by the chains of circumstance um, that we were before. And so that's why I feel like it's, it's really important to think about how we should constantly reconsider what the left really is um, and what we want it to be. And what's funny is we were talking about nihilism. I literally wrote in the margins over on one of these pages, left, the left is not nihilistic. So um, he says, love of martyrdom and heroics is as alien to the left as opportunism in a current situation or renunciation of utopian goals, the left protects against the existing world, but it does not long for a void. It is an explosive charge that disrupts the stability of social life, but it is not a movement toward nothingness. Yeah. Right. And I think that, you know, um, so that's, it's, it's just this idea of um, the, the left has to be 
in broad, it's taking on two things at the same time. One, it's taking on the political right, which we are all, you know, that's what we are the negation of. We exist as the negation of the right. Yeah. And the right are the defenders of hierarchy, the defend, the defenders of patriarchy, the defenders of authority and power. Right? Mm. But at the same time, we're also challenging the ways in which the left itself can be then become right. yeah. hierarchical. Yeah. So it's that it's a balancing act. Yeah, it's very important. Like uh, even within our own organizations, that we like we don't perpetuate racism or or sexism in you know our own groups. And unfortunately, it does happen a lot. But uh, we have to be vigilant against that. Exactly. Exactly. There's another key point that he makes that I really find interesting. And it's actually something that Bhaskar Sankara has written about and talked about too, um, founder of Jacobin, um, is that the political right, weirdly enough, kind of doesn't believe in anything. So like yeah. when – because you'd think, wow, well, they believe in all kinds of things, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 if you and Kolakowski makes the point that the political right generally only have tactics. They don't really have beliefs, yeah. Because their belief is really just the the maintenance of the status quo. Yeah, yeah. And um, whatever and, in whatever way that like might manifest, right? Like I was thinking about that today with like because you you think about well, how do we appeal to these people? You appeal to people's values, right? But on many levels, like some of the far right just doesn't have values and they will betray their own values as soon as the moment comes when they have to, you know, justify themselves, their actions or whatever. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So he writes here about that. He says, let us speak openly. Contempt for ideology is the strength of the right because it allows for greater flexibility in practice and for the arbitrary use of any verbal facade that will facilitate the seizure of power. Yeah. So they really are all tactics, right? Yeah. That's why the right tend to be better at the sort of short-term game politics because you don't give a shit about anything other than power. It's, so there, yeah. It, it just makes it makes me think of like the Sartre quote about how the anti-Semite doesn't have to be responsible with language or words, right? Like it's 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 Tucker Carlson talking out his ass about whatever the same fucking thing, he, whatever he wants, and then next week going talking about the opposite. Because it doesn't and, matter. <laughs> right. And like Tucker is like a perfect example. I'm glad you brought him up of what Kulikowski is writing about here. So think about Tucker Carlson as a political commentator. You know, this guy has been in my radar for God, 20 years. <laughs> unfortunately. And, <yeah>. Unfortunately. <laughs> and I remember him as the bow tearing, bow tie wearing guy that um, John Stewart called a dick. Yeah. Like I like, and, and back in the night in the, in, you know, People forget that like how he got to sort of prominence was during the 1990s and the welfare reform fight where Bill Clinton, his whole thing was like, we're going to end welfare as we know it. And we moved away from having um, aid to dependent families and children to TANF, um, which is what we have today and the way that the welfare structure is, is structured in the United States. Um, which is awful. I mean, it was not great before and it's horrible now. And it's been that way right. for about 25 years, almost going on 30. And um, he was sort of a late minute uh, scheduled guest on a television show where he got to sort of trot out his 
racist ideas about how like you know get the get the welfare queens off you know kind of channeling reagan there and um and that's kind of how he came to prominence was this like guy who would go on tv and a bow tie and and a smart shirt and like um uh say these deeply contemptible things um and and he's and in that regard he's actually the right is like that in general. Like that's yeah. their whole thing, right? Like whether it's Candace Owens or Ben Shapiro or whoever. It like, became too successful for like the base, right? So then right, they all do that. <laughs> and so, you know, Tucker went from being this like country club sort of garden variety racist to then becoming like this like indefatigable defender of the war in Iraq and President Bush. Yeah. And that didn't really go anywhere and then sort of started to become like more of like a Pat Buchanan type, but on MSNBC. And then that kind of didn't go anywhere because people forget Tucker Carlson had a show on MSNBC like twice. Um, And then he got to Fox News and it was sort of kismet because then it was was a couple of things happened at the same time. One was he kind of figured out what he was going to do, which was the sort of right populism, which is completely different than he was, you know. Yeah. 20 years ago during the war in Iraq, where he was sort of your typical sort of neoconservative um, and, you know, didn't find a war he didn't like. Right. Right. Where now he's like more critical of war, but it's in service of <laughs> sort of yeah. isolationism and nativism. Um, and so it was there was the sort of changing of the rhetoric. And then Bill O'Reilly basically getting me too and being thrown off Fox News. Right. So, because Tucker got his time slot. Yeah. And so that, like, those two things happening gave Tucker finally, after 20 years of trying, success. Like, he finally had bona fide success. Yeah. And it was doing it as this, like, right populist where, and the fact that anybody buys it is mind-blowing to me. But it's, but it's the power of, as you said, like, quoting Sartre, like, you don't have to be, you don't have to be discerning in your language. Yeah. When you can just say whatever the hell you want, you can get away with quite a bit. When, you, yep. and when the truth doesn't matter, then when the truth <laughs> when the truth doesn't matter and you have no scruples and you don't really care about yeah. the morality of it, you can kind of say whatever. And this is where I think we as the left have to acknowledge that like that's one of our weaknesses is that we actually do have beliefs. <laughs> we care about the facts, we care about We reality. care about the facts, we care about reality it's and we care about morality. But we do. <laughs> We care about what's right. And sometimes yeah. what's yeah. right isn't always what's popular. Right. You know? And yeah, exactly. So we're constantly fighting this like headlong fight where we're always butting up against. And that's what we should do as the left. We're constantly butting up against established systems of power and challenging them. Right. And so like as the society becomes more and more, um, you know, tolerant. Right. So like, for example, like, you know, 10 years ago, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was, we were talking more about marriage equality and, and gay people and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and we were talking more about that. Now it's trans folks because we've moved as a society where in some respects we've kind of gained a certain level of, you know, social acceptance and in, in yeah. a good way. Right. Yeah. So now we're fighting the new fight, which is, which is for trans folks. Um, which were always there. That was always a thing that we should have cared about. But now that the, the space has sort of opened up more because of our successes, hmm. in some respects, that, that will open it up for other things. 
which is why like he also makes the point of saying like never sell utopia short so like that's why we argue for the most like sometimes it's best to argue for the most hardline position because right. if you're going to have to do a compromise in a system it's better to make the hardline position and get a compromise that's really good than starting um then then starting with the sort of compromised position and getting something even worse yeah, which is what right. democrats generally do. <laughs> yeah that's so right. like that's like what Medicare, all politicians do. So right, like Medicare for all, right, is a very it's it's kind of it's my good example of this, where it's like it's very clear, it's very open about exactly what we want to do, and but you could take that even further, which is um, a fully public healthcare system, because Medicare yep. is just like having health insurance, right? So right. Some, some, you know, the hospitals can still be private, the doctors can still be private, the medical industries can still be private. So sometimes you can even take it further, which is the decommodification. Like that's the like that's the that's the more radical right version, like decommodification and re-socialization, where we truly make it a socialist or democratically controlled and owned uh, uh, means of production on certain things. So Medicare for all really is kind of, but you know, ten years ago, twenty years ago, Medicare for all wasn't really even on the radar, right? But that and so that was the most radical position. Well, now Medicare for all is in some respects kind of the compromise position. So now we can go even further, right? This is why prison abolition is, I think, a great point. Right. It's is exactly what Kolakowski's getting at, which is that you you start with the most, you know, radical, profound position. Yeah. So that you can No then, police, no prisons. Yeah, that's no police, we, no that's prisons. What we want. Yes, <laughs> right? So, you know, and so then if you then for the sake of giving people means that will actually make their lives better in the immediate. Maybe we do do a compromise, but that compromise is much better than what would have been if we had been more half-assed about it, which is why, you know, he and Ernst Bloch and others is like, don't give up the possibility of utopia. Like utopia is the goal, you know? And so, you know, and acknowledge that we may never get there, you know, that's why it's utopia. We're working for it. (laughs) We're working for it. It's utopia is literally no place, right? So it's got a comment from some random geek. I had several arguments to liberals about abolishing erg. Right, right. Because their mindset is they're not there yet, right? And so like it's really hard to make that argument. And the way that I try to make it is by saying, you know, we keep throwing money, good money after bad on this. Yeah. You know, we keep trying to give money, you know, if if it's kind of like if we build more lanes on the highway, it will reduce traffic. And it never does, right? <laughs> because does. of induced demand. Yeah. Because more cars will just be on the fucking road, right? If you give cops more money and they'll you give them it. more guns, yeah. they'll just use it the same way they did before, only more so. Yeah. And also sucks from liberals. Yeah, this world sucks, but it is the world we live in. I'm a realist. Ooh, good. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> so that's, that's really good. Um, hold on, because that's that's a very that's a very good point. So it's like, let's see, because um, he mentioned something like that in the in the chapter on the concept of the left is that, um, you know, the revolutionary movement is a catch-all for the ultimate demands made upon existing society. It is a total negation of the existing system, and therefore also a total program. A total program is, in fact, utopia. A utopia is a necessary component of the revolutionary left, and the latter is a necessary product of the social left as a whole. Like, I think that's right, you know? 
Um, yeah. Uh, the right strives to idealize actual conditions, not to change them. What it needs is fraud, not utopia. <laughs> um, society cannot be divided into a right and a left. The leftist attitude toward one movement can be linked with the rightist attitude toward another. It is only in their relative meanings that these words make sense. And that's like the Overton window part. Right. Um, but but yeah, he, he, he sort of talks about like, well, you're just trying to be a realist or whatever. And, you know, and it's – and so – you know, it's there's an essay later on in the book that's called Responsibility in History, and it's like a longer essay. It's like the bulk of the book. It's made up of four shorter essays, but he talks about the escapist conspiracy. And this is, I think, the difference as like we are utopians. We may have ideals. But we're not necessarily idealists because idealists are ones who are predicated on no action. It's the sort of liberal oh, okay. impulse, right? To believe in something, to sort of witness suffering, but not to really do anything about it. Ah. Which is generally kind of the difference, like when we think of, oh, he's just being idealistic. Like that's kind of like an ML thing, right? Um, or people who criticize, who, Marxists who criticize non-Marxists as being, everybody's idealist. Well, that's just a cheap word you can throw around to not actually interrogate what other people are saying to you. Right. Um, and so this is where we get into his the idea of the clerk and the anti-clerk. So the all out escapist of the clerk um, is, you know, somebody who is, you know, disguised as a guardian of universal human values, a costume lined with cowardice and hypocrisy. The clerk in reality longs to protect purely personal private values that matter to no one but himself. Right. So that's what really the idealistic or the escapist is, is somebody who, um, who just kind of gives up, there's a certain level of nihilism in that too, right? So when people say, well, this is the best it's going to be, I'm being realistic here. But are you being realistic here? Because in reality, what you're doing is you're accepting a social system as it is and right. accepting that that is, it is, it is the best it will be, which in and of effect is an ideal. Yeah. So when you're saying, well, I'm just trying to be realistic. Well, no, actually you're being idealistic as anybody else is, but your idealistic version of something is a far narrower possibility yeah. than what we seek to do and, and i think that you know and the anti-clerk um is is in some respects uh the the clerk the anti-clerk is also in a sense the realist so you have the escapist and the realist um the anti-clerk uh views the world from the vantage point of existence as distinct from the clerk who's who sees it in terms of what it ought to be in terms of a fiction he himself has created and sought unsuccessfully to impose upon reality in the confrontation, the escapist is on the on contact with the real world, totally compromised by the feet of his ought. So, you know, the realist is also in and of itself um, is these are both versions that are both problematic. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the escapist is someone who's just sort of falling into whatever their idea in their head, but not actually trying to realize it. And the realist is sort of realizing whatever they have, but is never challenging what it could, not challenging the system and seeing it as it could be. So the real balance is trying to strike a balance between the two. Mm. And the way you do that is by having um, reason and independence. So this is a great quote. And I think this sums up a lot of like the attitude of Kolakowski's ideas and kind of the, our show too which is, he says, man's decadence begins whenever the mo that most human feature, a rational understanding, becomes depraved in the service of national myths, emotions, and hatreds. 
An individual actively engaged in political conflicts can never attain the intellectual perspective uh, that enables him to perceive the limitations of his own camp and the irrationality of undertakings in which he participates. So it's important, like this goes back, we're talking about either about the true believer, right? Like Mm -hmm. political action is an evangelical exercise, as Adam Johnson calls it. And it is, right? Like we are, we are evangelists for a certain cause. The difference between that, (laughs) in a sense we are, right? Like we're, we're trying to sort of preach a new form of gospel. Right. This is where it's really hard to escape the language of religion, despite how much we might want to. Um, And so that we have to make sure that in the the desire for building a better world, that we do not lose our our capacity for reason and we don't lose our own humanity in the process. Yeah. You know, so this is where you'll hear like, well, you know, there were so many, you know, it's like, oh, well, there were so many people lifted out of poverty and, and a certain system. I'm like, yeah, but there were millions who were eviscerated by that same system. Yeah. So you so you can't really like make the argument that like, oh, well, everything got so much better. Well, yeah, but, but for only certain people, right? Right. Yeah. Like, you it, know, it, it, it's, yeah, it's hard once you, once you get into a certain rigid mode of thinking and then you that you can suddenly dismiss like uh you know even even a couple extra deaths right like if you can just dismiss that sort of thing it becomes pretty problematic but exactly yeah, yeah. and so like when he, we talk about like the clerkism is essentially like his stand in for stalinism this is mm-hmm. this is like his essay where he's sort of critiquing stalinism as opposed to real revolutionary socialism or leftism yeah and so he says clerkism is the defeat of political choice a flight from commitment that rationalizes itself as a defense of super historical values but in actual fact it shows the impossibility of finding values in current history The whole complex of recent political and intellectual attempts at the ideological renaissance of the revolutionary left, this is where he's talking about also in Poland, because he's writing about conditions in Poland in the 1950s and 60s, you know, which Poland after World War II was essentially taken over by the Soviet Union and became part of the Eastern Bloc um, and would be a part of the Eastern Bloc for essentially 40 years until the Solidarity Movement in the late 1980s and the political independence of Poland. the whole complex of recent political and intellectual attempts at the intellectual attempts at the ideological renaissance of the revolutionary left, attempts whose effects and effectiveness cannot be foreseen at present, must be characterized generally as an attempt to break through the traditional Stalinist blackmail of a single alternative in political life. Um, he is a humanist, burdened with all the traditions of humanism, which he does not want to discard, and like that's what we're talking about, where. You know, it's so important to have a healthy balance between, you know, the the, the capacity for utopia and the desirability of the here and now in in the sense that we're trying to fight for a better world and not sort of losing ourselves in the process of trying to make it. And that's always the trouble of, I think, any political movement is that you want to try to keep your humanity in the in the, the, the sort of maelstrom of, of political activity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that when it comes to, you know, um, so kind of writing further about um, sort of sects and sectarianism, he writes, 
Unflagging vigilance over its own meticulous boundary lines is an essential characteristic of every social group that can be called a sect. Constant control to assure precise and unambiguous criteria, differentiating it from the entire outside world. Hmm. So if your goal is to create a sect, which is so meticulously created that's separate from the world, how do you seek to change the world if you're no longer kind of a part of it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This goes back to the gesture idea of being of the world, but not necessarily from it, where you're coming in, you're being a part of the world, you're critical of it, but it's in service of trying to make the world better right? rather than sort of this separate world where you, um, where you are then sort of um, satisfied by your own pretentious, you know, uh, isolation, right? Um, and a much cruder way of saying it, you kind of start enjoying the smell of your own farts. Like your head's so far up your own ass that you can't really see anything else. Um, and he writes of Stalinism in this way, where he says, what Stalinism implies in the life of communist parties is not that they are so badly organized that they do not allow for the control of the party masses over the authorities. It means that the social functions of social function of the party is to render impossible a change in this type of organization. So like when we think of Stalinism, it became a very rigid, um, you know, archaic system. It kind of, it became very ideologically and strategically um, uh, uh, kind of moribund. It was, it was just not, it it became very um, rigid. And in doing so, it sort of limited its capacities for change, which is how it then became, um, in its own perverted form of politically right instead mm-hmm. of actually mm-hmm. being political left. Um, and so when you ban opposition parties, when you ban voices of dissent, when you, when you shut down points of view that don't, that, that challenge you, um, right. That's when you become part of that whole, uh, essentially. Yeah. When you start banishing yeah. like former allies, because they uh, disagree with you on something, that's not a good sign. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a bad way to run things. And so he talks about, you know, we can get into the whole no true Scotsman fallacy, and that's a true thing. Sure. This is what he writes about the true socialist. Right. The true socialist asks, act, sorry, the true socialist acts at the risk of losing, sometimes even with the certainty of losing, and the greater the probability of defeat the higher the moral value of his deed. The duty to fight for socialism has no motivation other than the fact that it is a duty, which means that socialism is realized as a value of the individual's moral effort. Those who think that socialism is as inevitable in the future as an eclipse of the sun scheduled for tomorrow can find nothing to lend moral worth to deeds performed with an absolute certainty of success. So when you when you separate progress solely from moral concerns, where it's like, and that's kind of what Stalinism does, um, and he kind of writes about that in his in his essay where he talks – in this other component of this larger essay is Stalinism seeing social progress as a moral duty. Um, but the problem is, is that social progress is a very sort of nebulous concept. So then yeah. what does that actually mean for you? Um, and so – if we wish, as he says, if we wish to avoid the obvious trap of reasoning in circles, we must choose one of the two concepts, either social progress or moral values, as logically prior to the other. So it's like, you know, it, it's better, it's much better to to go with moral values first and then build upon social progress. Because if all you're doing is social progress, 
at, you know, because social progress can mean more people are eating or it can mean that like more people live in houses and all those are very, very good things. Right. Right. But within a system as brutal as Stalinism was, um, that also meant like the, the jailing of political prisoners and people being in gulags and, um, and a lot of human misery for a lot of other people. So they were, they were sort of, um, uh, as Noam Chomsky would call it, there are worthy and unworthy victims, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there were, you know, there were worthy, you know, or there's and or worthy or unworthy people. So there were worthy people because they matched our view of social progress as a moral good, and there were those who did not match our moral value of social progress as a good. So anybody who sort of fit outside of that system was no longer considered a, an important component of it. Um, and I think that that's really the challenge. So. We as socialists and, and on the left broadly, um, you know, we we have to essentially choose a moral path first. What do we want to seek? And that's the sense of utopia, like the building of the better city, the better society, the right. trying to alleviate hierarchies and exploitation and alienation and leaving the space for people to truly live out their lives as they want to be. Right. Like that's the goal. And then you build on that from there. Yeah. So, because if you only yeah. do social progress first, it becomes much more nebulous. Yeah, it, I guess it, it becomes one of those things. Like uh, when you think about uh, the quote-unquote revolution, right? And you think right. like, okay, well, how many people will be harmed in this change, this social change, or potentially violent change? And is that like you have to be willing? To, you have to be able to like look at this and question: Is this effect? part of what I actually want? Like, is it, is it working towards the society that I want at the risk of my moral values? Right. Right. And so when in ultimately in this larger section, he talks about how Marx, Marx sort of served as the bridge between utopianism and realism. He is the kind of middle, Mm. he's not like the middle ground, but he's kind of the synthesis of the two. Right. Okay. So he says, Marx was the man who sought to build a bridge between the two cliffs, meaning realism and and utopianism. And on this bridge, utopian socialism was essentially to be overcome. Um, The the two men, uh, so it's essentially the difficulty of the job is not the ordinary one of discussing a theoretical problem by which not yet found a sufficiently well-based answer, but which may arrive at it at it someday when the issue will be settled once and for all. Well, that's actually, sorry. But long story short, like... Like Marx sort of saw himself as and and sort of tried to have that balance between the two. This is where you get the idea of like scientific socialism or whatever. And right. I don't and I don't necessarily think that term is like the worst thing ever because I read it as like a nineteenth century version of science, which is just much more like rational and empirical observations right. of right. phenomena and training. But politics at the end of the day is still a normative project. It's still about yeah. what society you want to build. I get I get stuck with this sort of thing with uh, just people in general because whether we like it or not, and maybe this is my uh, Damien influencing me, but whether we like <laughs> it or not, our values are the root of where we are. Like right. that, that everything comes from that. I'm I didn't become an anarchist and then develop the values that I have. I developed the values that I have. And then I looked at the world and anarchism seemed to fit them best. Right. (laughs) You know, 
Like, exactly. Exactly. Like, it's like, as Matt Dillahunty says, you know, my, my atheism was a result of my skepticism. Like, right. Like, you know, where, you know, certain conclusions we reach, we reach precisely because we have certain yeah, you like, know, morals. I believe and, in liberation. Like, yes. so that leads me to be on the left. That leads me to, right. <laughs> you know. And that leads to a form of social progress. And that's what Kolakowski would have argued too, is that like, it's, if all you care about is, is, if all you care about is ends, there will only be means. And if you only care about means, there will only be ends. In the sense that um, if your obsession with the end point blinds you from what you need to do in the immediate term to maybe even get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if all you care about is means, then you don't really have an underlying end that you're seeking towards. Right, like right. You're not, there's nothing you're actually fighting for, right? This is the sort of Vox view of the world, right? The sort of neoliberal view of the world is all about means and not ends. Right. Um, because the neoliberal impulse is basically to say, this is the best the world's ever going to be, and it's not really going to get much, much dramatically better. But we can kind of pick at the margins. And the way we pick at the margins is um, – if all you care about means you are the Democratic Party. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, and that's why I said sort of the Vox view of the world, right? The sort of if the as reclines of the world, um, that sort yeah. of centrist neoliberal sort of corporate Democrat world, you know, the, um, that all you care about is, well, okay, well, if we change this tax program here, we do this, that, and the other. And it's like, yeah, she might actually like help some people, but you're, you're sort of in your overzealous – desire to sort of tweak things you kind of lose sight of well what's the point of all of it to begin with what are you actually trying to achieve like what is what do you want it it often makes me think of like uh because anarchists talk about the sync like synchronizing ends and means that's the whole game right you cannot Mm -hmm. build the world you want by using means contradictory to that ends (laughs) um so like if we want a this is why we're against the state, right? If we want a free liberatory society without like, if we want communism, which is classless, stateless, moneyless society, we cannot do it by using the state is essentially part of, part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we talk about um, the desire to really build a better world, like that's why I always say, that it's always it, that politics is a normative enterprise. Like we are making a moral argument. Yeah. So like this is something that drives me crazy when people say that like we shouldn't legislate morality, but that's mm. what legislation is. That's literally yeah. Like what that's else? Literally you, what it is. <laughs> legislation is morality. Like, <laughs> Just a bunch we, of abstract things that nobody gives a shit about. You know, and like people can make the argument that there's no moral reason to have a speed limit, but I would say actually there is because the reason right. that you yep. would have a lower speed limit in some places is so that if you hit a child, you don't kill them. Well, speed limits are a product of safety necessity. They are a product right? of safety. It all goes back to a moral impulse. Yeah. Yeah. This is where that's where Kolakowski was, and that's where I, I know Damien is as an axiological atheist. Right. right. You go back to certain axiomatic, you know, foundational you know, positions. And then you build on that from there. And like, I, I agree with that. Like, I think like I'm with you, I want to live in a world where, you know, where again, it's the humanist view, which is that I want to build a world that um, allows for the free and open development of all. That's what I want. 
And when I talk about the free and open society, what I'm talking about is not like like libertarian, like right libertarian shit. Right. What I what I mean by the free and open society is one where people's needs are met, and so that it provides them with the space to find out who they really are. Yeah. Because so many of us, and pretty much any of us who are a product <laughs> yeah. of capitalism, yeah. right? We we suffer from exploitation. We suffer from alienation. We suffer from some forms of degradation. Um, and ultimately, it goes back to what we really want, which is liberation. I didn't mean to sound like Cornell West there. <laughs> um, we or live Jesse our Jackson. lives through coercion and force. Yes. And- yes. And that's why, like, the libertarian idea of, well, it's just a free open contract. Like, no, it's not. Like, you know, yeah, you know, if I, <laughs> if I don't work, I don't eat. Like, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about? Like, yeah. if I don't work, I don't get to have a house. If I don't work, I don't have the medicines that keep me alive. Like, I have to do that. Yeah. It is quite compulsive. Like, it, 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 you know, it's a compulsory system. And so, you know, because I believe in the supreme worth of individuals as well as humanity as a whole, like, I don't see humanity as like a illness or a virus or a scourge. You know, that kind right. of language is the language of fascists. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, and even if people who use it not necessarily are fascists, it's the language of fascists. The seeing humanity is like a plague. It's like, no, no, it's not. Like, and, and so it's either we have to fight the sort of impulses of the status quo, but at the same time, we have to fight the impulses of nihilism, of apathy, and of, um, you know, sort of, you know, maladapted modes of thinking that sort of yeah. leave people um, with with very little left to really give them a, a reason to live. Like if, if all you're doing is just like the doomerism of it, right? So it's right. like, well, everything's just going to go to shit. Who, why do I care or whatever? And it's like, I care because I find it to be morally, morally right to care. Yeah. Like I see that as a moral virtue in and of yeah. itself to care. Right. And I find not caring is a moral vice. And so like I act from the impulse of caring is important. So it's, it's, because the only way change ever happens is by people who actually do care. That's right. Yeah. And so if you're only in it for the glory or you're only in it for the, 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 the sort of prestige or you're only in it for the means, like, then you're not really in it. Like, you're not really interested in the left project. Because yeah. um, it's ultimately – it is about liberation. It's about liberation from artificial barriers that we have put against ourselves and others. Yep. That's the goal. Like that's the whole point. That's why socialism at its core or the left at its core is a humanistic project. Yeah. That's it. That's it's, we actually like humanity. Yeah. You know, conservatives hate humanity. They hate exactly. us. They, you know, they hate, they hate humans. They hate themselves. It's, mm. it's a philosophy built upon either no more, like no values at all, or only really one, which is hatred. Yeah. They're fueled solely by hatred. And a philosophy that's built solely upon hatred is one that will ultimately destroy others and will destroy yourself, which is the Stalinist project was built upon hate, right? We have to hate the revisionist. We have to hate right. the Trotskyist. We have to hate 
the the kulaks. We have to hate these other people, right? Yeah. It's the George Orwell thing, the ten minutes hate, right? It's it's the it's that idea of we have to find someone to hate, and in finding someone to hate, we don't have to actually deal with the real problems because that's the conservative impulse, right? Today it's like, well, we're going to blame the immigrants, or we're going to blame trans people, or we're going to hate so and so. Hatred is the fuel by which conservatism sort of continues on yeah. um, because it's all they've got. You know, they, they don't, they only have hatred. So, you know, we have to be hopeful. We have to be kind. We have, but not, but not naive. Right. Not, not easily, not pushovers. We should fight when it counts. We should also be mean when it counts in the sense that some people deserve it. Yep. And it's not necessarily out of hate, but out of justice. Yeah. That's the goal, right? And so it's about understanding the notion of justice and liberation, how those two go together. Because we don't live under a just system. We just don't. Right. And we face injustice every single day in all of our lives. No matter how comfortable we may be, we all face it. Yeah. So the 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 impulse to just sort of go, ah, eh, well, this is this is about as good as it's going to be. That's the impulse you have to fight. Yeah, yeah. That, and so, yeah that's, yeah, that's that's exactly the impulse that makes everybody like, like they say, oh yeah, well, it's not going to change. Ah, we can't trust any politicians, but I'm just going to vote for this guy all the time anyway. <laughs> Never criticize him. <laughs> and I, I think I want to end with the last essay. Um, cause we're certainly not going to cover everything because right. even though this book is only like 220 pages, it's, it's just covers got so much ground. in it. This covers a lot of ground, but the last essay is called in praise of inconsistency, that. um, which, which I, I, I really like this last essay because it gets into, um, what is a consistent person? Like, what does that mean to be a consistent person? So he writes about how. Uh, he writes, uh, therefore, I consider a consistent man to be simply one who, possessing a certain number of general absolute concept, concepts, strives earnestly in all he does and in all his opinions about what should be done to remain in the fullest possible accord with those concepts, right? Um, this is essentially like the the full absolutist consistent person is the conservative person. It's the person who is not willing to change mm-hmm. their values based upon new information or different circumstances. The a humanist is someone who will be inconsistent. Right. Because um, you have to adapt. Because right? you have to adapt. And so um so when we talk about um he talks about basically humanity has survived only thanks to inconsistency. Like we've changed all the time, right? Yeah. Like if Galileo didn't challenge this is the example he uses in the essay. If Galileo didn't challenge the church on the heliocentric, you know, the 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 Earth-centered theory of the universe, yeah, um, then we wouldn't have progressed, right? Science is, you know, inconsistency is science is a feature, not a bug, right? And so when we think about inconsistency, like on the surface, we go, well, oh, that person's a flip-flopper or they changed their mind. Right. Like, I want people to change their yeah, mind. I want you to change I've your mind based my on mind. the evidence. If I stayed the exact same way politically at 32 years old that I was at 18 or 22 or 24 or whatever, I would not, I would not be growing as a human being. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and so he talks about how inconsistency 
as an individual attitude is merely a consciously sustained reserve of uncertainty, a permanent feeling of possible personal error, or if not that, then of the possibility that one's antagonist is right. Okay. And I, you have yeah. to have that, right? You have to have that yeah. level of awareness that it's possible that this thing that I am saying is wrong, even though sometimes it's really hard to admit that <laughs> it's hard to do it. But- right, right. <laughs> But here's where he – but he ends the essay he, he it beautifully – oh, some random geek has a comment. When I am presented with new evidences, I change my position. What do you do with new information? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? Like you change with what you learn, right? And so I'm not the same person today that I was a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And anybody who would just stay the same their entire lives and is totally consistent all of the time is in and of itself conservative. It's not – yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's dogmatic, right? Um, but, and here's where the inconsistency is great, right? Where it's the whole, like, everything in moderation, even moderation. So he gets even into that. So he talks about how, for let us also bear, carefully bear in mind that to be consistent in inconsistency means to contradict by an act the application of certain consistency, something the affirmation of which, the affirmation of inconsistency, is the substance of that act. In short, to fall into an impossible situation, into an antimony. So like antimony. So like, that's a lot of words there. But basically (laughs) what he's saying is that if you're inconsistent all of the time, then you're being consistently inconsistent, which is a form of consistency (laughs) itself, right? Right. So like, if you don't, like, if you're like, well, um, you know, I'm going to change my mind based on the evidence, but I'm then I'm going to change my mind back or I'm, or whatever. Right. right. Every time I get new evidence, I'm going to change my mind again. Therefore, <laughs> I'm going to change my mind again instead of maybe the evidence either like clarifies a point of view. Right. It doesn't necessarily completely overturn it. Right. Yeah. So like new information doesn't always overturn our view of the world. Sometimes it just it either solidifies what we know. Um, and makes us more confident in it, in which case that's a form of inconsistency itself when you go from yep. being more soft in a position to harder, a little bit more harder in a position. Um, so he says, you know, let us therefore also be consistent in our inconsistency and apply the principle to inconsistency of itself. So, right. So it's everything in moderation, ex- including moderation, you know, that, that inconsistent, it's good to be incons- inconsistent even with inconsistency itself. And I love that. I like, I find like, I, I remember getting to that, the end of the book and seeing the title of that essay and be like, okay, where's he going with this? Right. And it's great because yeah. it gets to the heart of skepticism and what we as skeptics and humanists are all about, which is that, you know, that changing of our minds based on new information precisely because and we're going to go back to Damien here for a second, because we see it as a moral value yeah. to change our minds based on new information so that we see being truthful as being good yeah. and honorable. Right. So like, because, because truth is that which allows us to understand our world better and understanding our world better is something that we value, you know, so, because political politics is all about values, it's all about values. Yeah. It's all about morals. Yeah, and people, the know. whole facts over feelings crowd uh, is often the most led by their feelings, and but yeah. we, in, but we all are like that's why we have the the political values that we have. It's all and we should. Yeah, that's right. And we should, as David Hume said, reason ought to be the slave of the passions. That's right. so what he meant by that 
was that never let your reason overrule your moral conscience. Yeah. That's the point of that, you know? Um, or as he also said in the inquiry concerning understanding, he also said, um, uh, you know, let us philosophize, but, but also be a man. Now that's kind of gendered language, but what he means by that is like, at the end of the day, just be a person. Like you don't have right. to be like the philosopher all the time. Like, <laughs> you know, you can be a human being and like have short sights, short, you know, short sighted times and ignorances and like make mistakes and have passions. Like it's okay to do those things. Cause that's yeah. part of being human. Yeah. Like this is the <laughs> thing, like, and I can't help myself because I'm, I'm going to talk about Star Trek for a second. <laughs> So I feel like people, most people fundamentally misunderstand Spock. This is something that like drives me crazy. So people talk about Spock. Oh, Spock is pure logic. Everything about him is logical. No, it's not. <laughs> it, it, you don't think Spock feels things? Isn't he part Spock, human? <laughs> he's half human, right? Of course he's passionate. And he comes, <laughs> and he comes from a race. Vulcans, right? Even Vulcans are deeply emotional and passionate right. creatures. Just they the way they express it is they, much the way different. they express it. They yeah. maintain their emotions because their emotions are stronger than even humans sometimes. Yeah. So the, the goal is not to just like abandon all of your emotions in the service of logic, you know? Because as Spock said in Star Trek VI, logic is the beginning, not the end of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And the whole story of Spock is him learning to embrace the emotional part of him, to embrace the human part of him. That's the whole story. Like that's the whole point is for him to, to embrace every component of who he is. And, and like, that's what we should do too. Yeah. So like when people say, well, thanks for your feelings. Like first off, facts are not value neutral. They've never that's been. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So like your facts are in service of some kind of moral principle. Yeah. Like whatever facts you want to trot out, selective or otherwise, they're in service of what you're trying to say, yeah. which is generally going to be a moral point. And so we should not be afraid of any of that. Yeah. Having feelings and letting those morals and feelings be a part of who we are is being human. Yep. It's just as human as Ra rationality and that rationality and the and the sort of emotionality is what makes us who we are you know we human humanists are about creating a, a society where people can become the fully integrated self yeah. that they have the potential to become yep. and that's that's you know that's why the humanist project is something that deeply criticizes authoritarianism wherever it marches whether it's in capitalism or in state capitalism or whatever, mm -hmm. is it's challenging that which degrades human life. And, and we challenge that wherever it is. Yep. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, so I think it's important that we, we do that. And we recognize that the world is a very fluid and dynamic place. And that in being a fluid and dynamic place, that's what kind of makes it beautiful. Yeah. Like if everything was the same all of the time, that would suck. You know, we, <laughs> you know yeah. we deal with the struggles so as to know what the victories feel like. Right. Like life is a mix of all of those things. Yeah. Would you, right. you know? So, yeah. So it's, so in general, that's sort of my, our first sort of foray into talking about Marxist humanism. Very cool. I love this. I love this book. 
Um, I'll probably at some point even probably write something longer about it because I really, I think that Kalikowski was, was, was brilliant. He also wrote an enormous book, which is like behind me. It's like right there. It's called uh, Main Currents of Marxism. It's actually three books. The version I have is one book put together. I think, uh, um, yeah, uh, Kerrigan uh, sent a tweet to me a few days ago uh, about uh, Kaliko- Kalikowski uh, and how he uh, became an anti-Marxist due to his negative experiences with state communist Poland. Yeah. And, yeah, and the main currents of Marxism, which is very critical of Marxism in general. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so this is where we get into the sort of like earlier Kalikowski and like later Kalikowski. So like he never fully Im- abandoned like the socialist project. Mm. Um, but basically he became closer to another sort of humanist who came out of Marxism, who then became critical of Marxism, a guy named Sidney Hook. Okay. Um, Sidney Hook was also kind of like that too. Um, so like there are other Marxists, like Ralph Miliband has written a whole essay uh, basically saying that like Kalikowski's the worst and whatever. But <laughs> I think like what Kalikowski does well is ex- explore both the great things about Marxism and what Marxism can be and all of the terrible things about it too. Mm. And like all of its limitations, all of its problems um, and its sort of degradations as time goes on Um so he never like fully abandons it, but he definitely becomes more, more, much more critical, ex- much more critical as time goes on. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's like, so like in general, like my own personal position on Marxism is probably closer to Eric Fromm's than it is to Kalikowski's because like mm. Fromm pretty much stayed a Marxist his whole life. Right. Whereas Kalikowski kind of didn't, but, <laughs> um, but and he also became like Kalikowski also wrote a lot more about religion as life as his life went on. Oh, okay. More about religion and myth. And so like the early Kalikowski of which this book is a part of is a lot closer to the more sort of like skeptical humanist tradition, but he never really abandons his humanism, but he does sort of abandon some of his Marxism. So Kerrigan okay. made a great point. Um, and, um, and yeah, so like it's, I think it's, Relevant. N- nevertheless, I still think that Main Currents of Marxism is a, a, a quite uh, impressive book in cool. terms of its historiography of Marxism, because it's all in one place. It's you know very few books right. kind of put it all in one place, which is kind of nice. Oh, cool. Um, well, I guess what are we covering next time? So next time we are covering. We're doing another dual review. Um, so we're uh, talking yes. about. So next time we're going to be talking about two books. We're going to be talking about. Um, we're going to kind of go back to our roots a little bit, I guess. And we're going to be talking about God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. Um, I'm doing retrospective review on that book for the Truth Seeker magazine, which will be in the forthcoming issue, the summer issue. Okay. Um, I've been asked to because we're going to be – the Truth Seeker is going to be publishing an excerpt of a guy who just wrote a book on Hitchens. And we're going to run an excerpt of his book and then we're going to run my stuff. Yeah. And I thought it would be kind of fun after not having read that book in like 10 years, even longer than 10 years – See how what, it holds up. See how it holds up. So, spoiler alert, it holds up a lot better than I thought it would. Oh, um, cool. Uh, so, That's good to know. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, was, so th- I was prepared to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it, it's – it's. but the other book we're going to be covering is called um, Reason, Faith, and Revolution. It's by Terry Eagleton. Okay. And, and Terry Eagleton is awesome. I, okay. I love him. He's a Marxist um, literary theorist, um, cultural critic – 
And his book is basically written in response to Christopher Hitchens and sort of critical of Hitchens. Okay. Um, I find there's a lot in both books that I like and both things that I'm critical of, and we'll sort of get into that. But in general, I like both books. Um, and so I'm working on the, the, the Hitchens one now, and I'll probably write another piece that's going to be separate. That'll be about Terry Eagleton's book. Um, and, and Terry Eagleton's book, he's very similar to Slavoj Zizek in this regard. Um, we haven't covered Zizek yet on the show, but we will. Um, uh, but, uh, um, talking about sort of Christian atheism and okay. and what that kind of represents, because that's kind of what Terry Eagleton is, and it's kind of what um, Zizek was is too. Okay, um, and their view on theology is really unique and interesting, um, and is no way like it's like essentially it comes down to different types of humanism um, for Terry Eagleton, and he talks about how. Hitchens' humanism is different than his, and he sort of explains why. Okay. Um, and so that'll be, I think, a good episode, cool. and it'll be fun to talk about. So, yeah, no, Hitch, that book, I think the thing, what makes God is Not Great, I think, hold up better is that he kind of wrote it knowing it was going to be kind of evergreen. Mm. So he tried his best not to, like, infuse it with as much of, like, what was going on at the time or, like, current events or, like, his own right, like, specific right. politics sometimes. So. It's actually a lot more general, I thought, than I remembered. Um, That does not necessarily mean that I love everything about Hitchens. I don't. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, but yeah. Anyway, I like Eagleton's politics a lot better. He was sort of a keeper of the faith, to use a phrase, talking about being a socialist. So, Um, And I guess, where can people find you? So people can find me at uh, justinclark.org. That's my website. It's where my writing, podcast episodes, um, my other professional work is all there. Um, you can also find me at on Instagram at justinclarkph. PH is for public history. And like I said, I'll be having that essay about Hitchens. It'll be in the upcoming essay on the Truth Seeker. Um, and um, I will keep plugging along on other projects throughout the summer. So, you know, just keep, keep, uh, stay in tuned and, uh, I'll see, I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. And, and like I always say, support the Patreon. <laughs> you know, Corey works very, very hard on this show. And, uh, and I would love for him, you know, throw him a little, throw him a little coin. Or that, share the show. Uh, I, or share yeah, the show. Share the That's show. good too. Yeah. If you can't, if you know, if you can't, I know not everybody is not necessarily in a position to support financially. That's fine. Give us a like. Share it out on your social media. That's right. Uh, especially when Corey cuts up like the one or two minute clips. Like, yeah, I want one of those bad boys to go viral. So like, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's have that happen. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was a great episode tonight. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you in a couple weeks, man. This was great. Good. All right. That's all, folks. Thanks for watching and or listening. Remember to share this show with your friends or on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. I really appreciate it. And it helps me survive, which is essentially the only way that projects like this can continue for me. If you want to contribute, you can do that at uh, patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical leftist. If you can't contribute financially, then a a like on YouTube or a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser would be great. If you want to find more from me, then make sure to check the show notes for links to all my stuff and to check out my website, skepticalleftist.com. 
There you can find the videos I do with my friend Damien Marie Atho, and all my old content from the Brainstorm podcast, Skeptarchy, and from my newly retired show, From Ma From Many People's Strength. You can also find links to my Discord, Reddit, and Twitch. You can contact me through my website or by emailing mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. My Twitter is at skepticallefty. My Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist, and my Mastodon is collectiva.social slash at Skeptical Leftist. Thanks so much for listening and or watching, and make sure to leave a comment on the video or on my website. Uh, join your local org, print off some posters or pamphlets, and uh, spread the propaganda.